The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Maybe some of you are new and notice that after the sit, some people put their hands together, bring their forehead down. There's a you probably see it in a lot of uh, movies and other places. It's kind of gesture from the East, of course, and I was raised as a Catholic. We did this a lot, too. But you can just play with that gesture, see if it actually feels good to do. It's just using a physical gesture to help cultivate this inner feeling of gratitude or thanks. So it could, and not that we're even being grateful for a particular person or thankful to a particular person. It's just being thankful or being grateful for the time, for the practice, for the health that we have. So it's really it, that inner gesture is what's really important, you know, to with this calm, to whatever degree the mind is calm or clear at the end of the meditation period to just express some gratitude or thanks. And uh, in a way, doing, doing that on an, in an inwardly way, it actually strengthens the intention behind practice. It's like we're creating a ritual to recognize, to remember and recognize how uh, healing or useful the practice is. Because otherwise we might just get up and, and go about our day and the effect of the practice might not make much of an imprint on us, but if we just have a little ritual or gesture at the end, and then we're kind of reminding ourselves, well, how is it now? Was this useful? Was this something good and beneficial? And if in looking directly in our experience, the answer is yes, then we can be grateful to that or thankful for that. Yeah, this is a good thing. I really appreciate having this practice in my life. And of course, you can appreciate the center, and you can appreciate all your teachers, and you can appreciate the tradition too. But what we want to do is practice seeing what's beautiful directly in terms of the results or effect of the practice. Oh, this is beautiful. This is good. This is something wholesome. So I don't usually bring that up, but I, it occurred to me that new people might wonder what we're doing. Of course, in some Buddhist traditions, they they do um, more formal bowing, as they, as we do in this tradition when there are monks and nuns around, especially. But uh, even if you practice in Asia at one of the monasteries or retreat centers, every time you walk into the meditation hall, you would bow down to the Buddha as a symbol of what's going on internally. It's not that the statue itself is holy. But the process of purification, the process of awakening, is really good. And I mean, you can use the word holy if you like it. And that's what we bow down to. And uh, then you bow when you leave, so there's a lot of bowing. Even in this tradition, we just don't do it so much in the West. So some of you have been coming for a while and know that I've been giving a, a series of talks on integrating practice into daily life. and. They slowly make it onto the website, so if you want to go back and hear some of the earlier talks, you can. And I'm 
sort of have a structure for these talks, and I'll be continuing for at least a couple more, more months on this subject of what does practice look like when we're not formally meditating? What, is that, what does it mean to be a spiritual aspirant, somebody who is orienting their lives in the direction of this inner freedom? Meaning, it's not a freedom about like uh, not being oppressed in terms of our social situation. We still may have an oppressive husband or wife or culture that we live in, or we still may have other problems. So uh, a spiritual aspirant means that we're orienting our life or our mind in the direction of an inner freedom. So what does that practice look like in daily life? And I've been talking about it in a way, and, and I want to spend uh, maybe 20 minutes or so just talking about a simple framework that you can hold all the things I've been talking about and will be talking about. And it's just a division of the Eightfold Path, the basic outline of the spiritual path that the Buddha gave. And he divided the Eightfold Path into three categories. And this is actually, if you're interested in... Um, understanding the different Buddhist models, this is a good one because so many of the other models relate to this. So there's the wisdom part of the spiritual practice, which in Buddhism, wisdom has a lot to do with our view in any moment. Through what kind of lens are we perceiving understanding the world? And sometimes the lens we're seeing, understanding, experiencing the world through is really cloudy. So, because of that lack of clarity, our response to the world is also clouded or off a bit. One of the, the uh, roots of the word dukkha, suffering, is it's a wheel that's out of true. And so this gives you a sense of ignorance. It's like, because of the misperception, the, the view's off, it's like our life doesn't work very well. It's like being a wheel that isn't round. It doesn't quite work. So this is one part of our practice, one, you could say one-third of our practice, is developing, purifying the lenses that we see our world through until our lens is so perfect that there's no distortion, clear view, or there's uh, no view is actually the clearest view. So that's one-third of the practice. The other third of the practice is to purify our actions. That's what we've been talking about for the last month or two terms of sila practice, or sometimes we call it ethical conduct or living in harmony. But here, we're using awareness to purify, to really look at all the different ways we relate to things, to people and things and other beings, to the environment, to the world at large, to our intimate partners, how we relate to ourselves, and uh, purifying those relationships from relationships that have a lot to do with <clears throat> a sense of separation, a sense of self, to a way of relating that isn't heavily influenced by a strong sense of self and other. So that's a third, another third of our practice. And then the final third that we really haven't talked about in, in terms of daily life practice, and in a way it's a little harder to talk about in terms of daily life, is the development of non-distraction, a non-distracted mind, or really developing the power of mind to be fully in the moment, 
this is actually the root of all confidence in the world. I mean, we normally think of samadhi as something we do when we're meditating, you know, and we're concentrating on the breath or with the sensations or learning to return the attention over and over again to the present moment. But actually, this is just as important, if not more important, in daily life. I mean, any competence we have, whether as a carpenter, teacher, parent, friend, it relies on samadhi, being able to really show up, not to be scattered, not to be distracted. It's hard to be a good lover if we're distracted. It's hard to be a good citizen if we're distracted. It's hard to do anything well in the world if we're distracted, if the mind is scattered. So this is what I'll be talking about a little bit down the road. It's like, what does samadhi look like in terms of daily life practice? How do we develop samadhi, this one-pointedness or this collectedness or wholly, fully present? It's really about commitment. I mean, you don't need to wait until I start talking about it to begin to work with it. But being fully committed to whatever you're doing, because that's what you're doing. And the appropriate way to do anything is wholeheartedly. So when we're driving, you know, which is our tendency is not to be wholeheartedly driving. You know, we're, it's almost an affront to think that I'm going to waste this beautiful mind on driving, you know, when I could be doing so many other things like worrying or planning or <laughs> listening to music or news that I've already heard. So now some of you have been coming, you've heard me talk about softening and slowing down and the practice of freedom, but this is really, those first two ways I talked about integrating practice in daily life, these are really wisdom practices. This is the direct approach. And then the sila part, the five precepts, that's of course a gradual approach. And I want to just kind of outline how these three areas are different. And I have two fingers for the wisdom part because what I've talked about, this is like uh, in February, so a while back, I talked about initially the easiest way to practice in daily life is just to slow down a little bit and soften the body a little bit. But that's such an effective way. But this is basically the expression of wisdom in the body. Just like ignorance in the body is going through life tight, you know, with the body defended or rushing, you know, like a, a mad person or, a, you know, just uh, sort of bouncing off of things. And so when, uh, when the body relaxes, it's like that's how the body expresses wisdom. Because remember, wisdom in a Buddhist sense is uh, a kind of understanding that, that things are the way that they are. Because a lot of our defensiveness, our armoring in the body, is a, is a kind of unconscious rejection of the way things are. Like, this isn't okay, so I'm rushing in order to get to the time or place where it will be okay. But of course, then when we're there, there's something else to rush to, to hurry through, or to defend ourselves against. This is unpleasant, or this is so good I don't want it to end. So we tighten up even when it's good. And we tighten up when it's difficult, and we're tightening up when we want things to be other than they are, and we're on our way to some place. We're tightening up, tightening up all the time. So the way we express wisdom in the body is first 
just to drop into the body is already in the direction of softening and slowing down. And then if we can, in that just that presence of the body, more armoring doesn't make sense. It only makes sense when we're not paying attention. It never makes sense to tighten up. And this is like why some of these uh, these mindful movement practices like uh, Hatha Yoga, when it's taught, in my mind, correctly, or Qigong or Tai Chi or some of the other forms of movement. Now, in the West, there are a number of that have come up, like mind, uh, body-mind centering, some of you might have heard of. It's a well-known form, and Feldenkrais, and the Alexander Technique, and many of these sort of mind-body movement practices that really are about developing a sensitivity to how the body is being misused by the mind and sort of as a repository for all our stress, for all our fear, for all our desire. And so we can learn to express basic wisdom by just slowing down and relaxing, softening. And then in a more profound way, and this is what I talked about later in February, later in the month in February, which is integrating practice in daily life, one of the most direct ways is just to soften the mind, to go from a tight mind to a free mind. Sometimes you can think about it as softening or relaxing the mind, and other times you might, it might feel more like you're expanding the mind or expanding the heart, like removing boundaries. So we're in boundaries, me and you, this and that, what I don't like, what I like, and we just sort of let those boundaries become more porous and disappear. And you can try it right now. Like even in this room, you might have a sense of, you know, Mark is the teacher, I'm the guy who doesn't know, or Mark's an idiot, I'm the guy who knows, <laughs> or this is a holy place, out there is bad, or this is kind of weird, wish I were home where it's safe. So, and then we can just sort of, it's like that inner relaxation in the mind and heart. And so what we're really relaxing is any kind of definition, any concept, a conceptual overlay that we might have about who we are, what's going on, who I'm not, who you are. Sort of don't know mind don't need to know mind, don't need to define, and see how boundaries begin to disappear. And so this is wisdom practice. It's, it's the direct path of like learning, in moments at least, to let go of view and see that actually we func- function quite well. We don't need a view to live our lives. I mean, the body and mind, the sort of uh, more primitive body and mind, it knows quite well how to get through life. I mean, we see this all the time. I always give the example how we can drive home and not realize that we did it. So we can do quite complicated things without being conscious. There's a very interesting book, uh, Julian James, uh, he's dead now. Uh, He wrote a book back probably in the 70s or actually, I think even before, maybe even the 60s, uh, called um, something like the, 
development of the bicameral mind, the, break, the breakdown of the bicameral mind, well, okay, I'm not remembering it. But anyway, he talks about his theory. It's kind of out there. But he was a professor at a very respectable university. <laughs> anyway, he had this theory that people didn't really, human beings didn't really develop sort of self-awareness until quite recently. And he points to actually ancient literature that literature was written before self-awareness. And he, he points to some of even the ancient Greek writings and other early writings. And, uh, and back then, you know, I don't know what that, what that would be, but, you know, somewhere around 1000 BC, thereabouts, uh, the brain sort of morphed. I don't know if it, if it morphed physiologically or just uh, sort of it's sort of um, how it organized its conceptions of the world. And it began to be able to uh, sort of have enough conceptual flexibility to conceive of itself apart from the whole. Just like a little baby, you know, if you read any sort of developmental psychology, little babies, they don't really have a sense of themselves apart from the rest until, does anybody know what it is? It's about a year or something? Do you know, Corey? Is, year and a half or two. Yeah. Where at some point they can sort of, they know that the person in the mirror is them. And I mean, there's all kinds of ways that psychologists have sort of figured out to get this. Of course, we don't really know. Maybe you remember, but I don't. What it's like to be three months or something like that. But the, the idea is that uh, we have this, uh, this language that allows us to conceive of self and other. And that can be softened. And actually, we don't want to destroy that. I mean, it actually, now it's, it's required to function in the world to be able to sort of see ourselves apart from the whole. But we don't need to be deluded. We can see that that's just sort of a, a working mechanism in our culture. It's not an absolute truth. But we live with it as, it's an, as if it's an absolute truth, self and other, this and that. Yeah, that it was kind of group consciousness functioning. And, uh, and he points to sort of how society's cultures were structured in that way and how they kind of had group mind. And, uh, you know, if you can even look at certain organisms, uh, animal, animals and insects, you know, how they kind of operate very much as an organism, even though there are many ants. The anthill sort of operates in a way that uh, it's like a, it's really not easy to say that well there's an individual consciousness in this ant apart from but but somehow as a whole they function as an organism and he that's what he thought human culture was more like that and somehow a shift happened and he relates it to the two hemispheres of the brain and how they've been able to communicate in ways that they weren't earlier yeah Julian James I can find the, the title of that book. I'm sure it's still in big libraries. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's a mouthful. <laughs> no, I think he was just pointing it out and the implications of that. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, what I thought I'd, what we could do for the next several weeks 
is look at this second way of integrating practice in daily life. So the first way, just to remind people who haven't been here. So we've got uh, four, four ways. The last way I haven't talked about yet, which is samadhi, the one-pointedness. So the ways we've talked about is softening the body, slowing down and softening the body. Second way was softening the mind, or the direct sort of orienting the mind toward freedom, freedom from concepts, right? And this last uh, month or so, I've been talking about uh, purifying our actions, purifying our actions of self-centeredness, but really focusing on the actions, like do we cheat on our taxes? Do we uh, engage in sexual misconduct? Do we cheat? Do we lie? Do we squash mosquitoes? You know, all those sorts of, just looking at those behaviors, seeing what surround those, uh, creatively using restraint to sort of reveal the kind of habit energy or conditioning behind some of these behaviors so we can purify our actions in the world. So that's one way to practice in daily life. So we're going to go back to the direct path for uh, about a month or so. And we're going to reflect on different ways to directly go beyond concepts as we're living our life. And the easiest way, and then I'll just spend the next 15 minutes introducing it, and then we'll follow up for the next several weeks. The easiest way to go beyond concepts is to use a concept that has built into it the absence of boundaries. And so the concept is love. This is why love is part of every spiritual, any authentic spiritual practice, because as a human concept, love, you know, when I use the word love, but as we reflect on the concept, meaning that we've got the concept, the word love, or the word kindness, or the word compassion, and all the different words, you know, associated with love, when we have those words and this concept, and then we reflect more directly on the experience of love. You see that when we reflect on the experience of love, it moves us from a place of separateness to those boundaries getting relaxed. Because the very, you know, in the most basic way, love is an inner generosity. It's the absence of this sort of inner gravitational pull, like, well, I need things for me, I need safety, I need your love. But when, when we're sort of experiencing some kind of real or uh, authentic love or compassion, then the experience is a giving away or a, <clears throat> a letting go or a dropping of boundaries, feeling connected feeling like we belong, feeling at home, feeling safe, feeling tender. It's like uh, little rootlets going out in all directions. And, and related to this is also a feeling of trustworthiness and even confidence because of the, the generosity is coming from the inside out. At least that seems to be how it's experienced. So. Love gives us this sort of feeling of confidence, like there's this inner goodness, and that feels so good, instead of thinking of ourselves as being bad, seeing that we have to somehow 
um, not let people know who we are because we're bad. And then all of a sudden, we feel this inner goodness, like being generous or being loving or being patient or being forgiving. And we say, oh, that's good. That's good. I'm not ashamed of that. That's a beautiful thing. And so all of our self-centered stuff begins to soften and relax because of this inner goodness. We don't need to prove ourselves to anybody because there's this inner goodness we're experiencing or seeing directly. So hopefully, working with what can be kind of abstract and seems a little bit like you know going beyond the sense of self, dropping concepts can sound very like out there and you know how do we do that? But if we put it in terms of dropping into the experience or into this inherent capacity to be loving. Now, of course, we have to purify our what we think love is. We have to purify that concept, you know, because it's like we love hamburgers, too. <laughs> <laughs> and love, so love is associated with attached love. That's not love. That's like, I'll be kind to you if you're kind to me. But if you screw with me, you better watch out. <laughs> you know, so that's attached love. It's like a deal or a business arrangement. And there's a lot of tightness there. So real love in the way that I'm talking about it. So you can use the Pali word. If, if the word love for you is corrupted, that's fine. Just find another word. The Pali word is metta, M-E-T-T-A. means that inner generosity or friendliness or tenderness or usually it's translated these days as loving-kindness, that inherent loving-kindness at the heart. And uh, so we're, we're just uh, learning to find a way in. And so for our homework this week, we can work with forgiveness. Traditionally, or often at least, forgiveness is the one of the easiest ways into love. Because we could ask ourselves, well, what's in the way of our loving heart? If this is truly the inherent nature or essence of the mind and heart, this sort of inner generosity, this boundless feeling of wholeness, of belonging, non-separateness, then what's in the way of it? I mean, why, why do we have a world like this? Or why do I have a life like this if that's the essence of my heart? And so the reason that forgiveness can be useful is when we ask what's in the way, what do we see? Well, we either feel like the world doesn't deserve my love because I'll just get squashed. You know, I'll be the doormat, <clears throat> the doormat of the world and everybody will take advantage of me if I'm loving and patient and kind. So <clears throat> there's some fear or resentment or we've been hurt you know and we want revenge it isn't wasn't fair that we got hurt we were mis we've been we think we've been mistreated <clears throat> so there's some built-up stuff there's some unfinished business and so this is where forgiveness comes in and forgiveness is this basic insight that I don't want to have to continuously 
recreate the story of the person who's angry, being the person who's angry, resentful. I don't want to have to be the victim anymore. It's like this wisdom of exhaustion. I'm tired of being angry. I'm tired of being bitter. I'm tired of being resentful. So it's it's really being tender with that pain of having because we think unconsciously, of course we don't we're not conscious about this. It's mostly maybe completely unconscious that we feel like we have to hold up all of our old hurts, all of our resentments, all of our disappointments. We've got to keep them alive. Because it happened to me. You know? So to let them notice like how it's scary to let because we don't know who we are if we're not the person who had a bad childhood or the person who got dumped when we were you know 10th grade or <laughs> whatever it was for each of us the Buddha said just as water cools both good and bad and washes away all impurity and dust. In the same way, you should develop thoughts of love to a friend and foe alike. And having reached perfection in love, you will attain enlightenment. The key here is not to begin in an idealistic way, which is our tendency. Because, you know, we just we like grand, dramatic things because that feeds the ego. Okay, I'm going to love all beings at all times. <laughs> Or a good friend of mine, uh, when she was living out in the West Coast, and uh, after 9-11, their local Buddhist Sangha got together to meet, you know, to sit and to offer good wishes to all the people. And so this person thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open to all the confusion in the world right now. And she, she was blown away. <laughs> You know, because she's, she's someone who had done a lot of practice, but she really kind of opened, had this idea, where is my confusion? <laughs> and developed some capacity to, be the, to really be, to peacefully coexist with my own confusion. And then from there, you know, little concentric circles. Maybe I can, maybe I can open my heart to the confusion in this world, in this room, you know, these 15 people. And how, what's alive in our hearts here in this room, <clears throat> and then out from there, little by little. And so this is this is like reminding us why forgiveness is a good place to begin. Another good place to begin is patience, because patience is the first step in the direction of tenderness. And remember, all we're needing to do is put a little kink. You know, the ego. The ego built on fear and resentment and greed and neediness and all those sorts of things. It's like this very shiny, seemingly invincible facade. But it's like, uh, you know, some of these facades, they're just, they're very shiny, but the superstructure is very thin. You can imagine like a very thin metal. metal. And sometimes with these, I'm trying to, I don't know where I have this image, but there's a particular image, an experience I had that if you put little dents in this, it's like the, the superstructure depends on the smoothness 
of the superstructure to maintain its strength. And when you get little dents, it loses very quickly its strength. It's easy to, for the whole thing to collapse. And so to, uh, to soften the mind, remember this whole conversation we're, we're beginning and will continue for the next several weeks, it's really about softening the mind, Soffer, softening the superstructure of our conceptual reality, going beyond our conceptual reality, not destroying it. That's a thought that it's bad. So it's going beyond good and bad because that's all about concepts. And so love is one, I'll talk about other ways, but love is probably the most accessible way. And any kind, any flavor of love, like patience or forgiveness, it just puts a little thing in that superstructure. Because it doesn't make sense. The superstructure is built about on me being a part. So when I'm forgiving, being forgiving doesn't make sense in a world where we feel apart. Because in a world where we feel apart, we feel like we have to defend our ground. And one of the ways we defend our ground is we don't forgive those people who have harmed us. Because it's a, it's like a, feels like weakness, like we've given up some ground. But what love sees, love, you know, love and wisdom are really the same thing. What love understands is, I don't want to hold up this resentment anymore. I don't want to be the angry, bitter person anymore. I don't want to be the self-hating person or the outside-hating person. I don't want to have to judge and compare. So that the forgiveness is, is more than, it's not about taking care of the other person, which of course it is nice to be forgiven. So it is good for the other person. But that's not where it's initi the, the initiation of forgiveness is. It's, it's like taking care of the heart. It's a movement in the direction of compassion. We're taking care of ourselves, first and foremost. And it puts a little dink or a little nick in our whole ego superstructure when we're forgiving, when we're patient. So I'll just leave this, uh, leave us with one sort of specific instruction around forgiveness that you, if you'd like, you can just work with uh, as homework for the next week. Just remember, this is our daily life homework. So just as we're going about today and remembering, you should just practice in all ways, like how to, how to play with love, how to initiate, ignite the feeling of love, that inner generosity. So instead of an inward gravitational pull, it's all about me. It's just an opposite kind of feeling, an opening in all directions, and including. So it, it has different, energetically, it can feel slightly differently, but it, it's about including movement outward. And um, so we think, well, what creates, what supports forgiveness? And uh, this one author, who is a teacher now, but a student of Joko Beck, a great Western Zen teacher in San Diego. Um, there's a Baida at home in the muddy water. Someone gave me this book for my birthday. And uh, 
I don't even know if it's a woman or a man. Is that a man's name? Or is that anybody know? Ezra. Ezra? Anyway, in his book, um, he says that the first stage for forgiveness, you can't just go straight to forgiveness. The first stage, the first step, is we have to feel what it's like to be unforgiving before we can forgive. Right? And it kind of fits what I've been saying. So this is our homework for this week. To notice the places in our lives, or at least one place in our lives, where we're unforgiving, where we're kind of unconsciously or consciously uh, recreating boundaries, you know. I'm not opening my... Like, it's so silly. Like, if my wife leaves something in the wrong place, in some subtle way, I might be unforgiving. It's like, you know, okay, I'm going to, like, not open my heart because she did something wrong, you know. The toothbrush wasn't put away, so... And so just in little ways like that, sometimes these are the best places to practice. Because then we see, oh, this is what it feels like to have thrown somebody out of my heart. It feels like this. Because if we don't notice that, it means we don't notice it. So we just continue living with it. It becomes kind of our second nature. We just feel, well, this is the way it should feel. Like having thrown everybody out of our heart. So you can just, even like you might have thrown Hillary out of your heart, or Obama out of your heart. And you realize, well, does anybody be, actually deserve to be thrown out of our heart? Do we actually have to throw anybody out of our heart? Like even George W. Bush. Do we need to throw him out of our heart? So you can explore like things like that. Well, maybe not. Does it do any good? Who gets hurt by throwing somebody out of our heart? We can see. Where is the actual hardness? You know, I'm not sure George W. Bush suffers if one of us has thrown him out of our heart. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that we suffer if we've thrown him out of our heart. Now, it doesn't mean we um, approve of a person's behavior or don't take action to sort of rectify problems or fix things. But we don't need to be hateful to, to be active in the world. So I'll leave it here so that we have time, maybe in part uh, as a way of stimulating uh, more depth and uh, more, in Buddhism, upaya is skillful means. So the idea is we want as many tools, as many skillful means as we can. So one of the nice things about hearing how other people have worked with, like bringing love, this more authentic metta up in your lives, or specifically with forgiveness or patience, that we kind of get different skillful means. Oh, I can, I can reflect in that way. I could do this too in, in this situation in my life. So any questions that you have or any experiences or things you'd like to share? Yes, and please say your name. I'm Margaret, and I'm wondering how you deal with aversion. Yeah. So you're averse to something in your life. Is that what you're saying? So like, now the nice thing to do is, um, instead of me giving the answer, is everybody should be reflecting on this right now, like bringing to mind the time you were averse, and just sort of reflect on how could I have related to that aversion more skillfully than I did. Right? And then 
Because then we're really kind of ground, we're kind of developing upaya, skillful means. Because that will affect us the next time we're angry. That, that reflection might sort of uh, inform that situation. And here the key is to start simply. It's always, it's always the key in spiritual life is to take the step we're ready to take as opposed to being idealistic. Because if we're idealistic, then what we'll do is we'll hate ourselves for being aversive. Because, you know, we shouldn't. We've learned that we're not supposed to be aversive in the world, that all it's doing is harming us and uh, harming others. So then we start saying, God damn it, I'm aversive again. You know? And, of course, that's just the perpetuation of more unwholesome habit energy. So what's the easiest step with aversion? I mean, we might, if there's enough presence, we might be able to just hold the aversion in that space of mindfulness, which is love, that loving, open, forgiving space of mindfulness. That would be the, the most direct and effective way. Can we just see this aversion? See, now, notice, I'm not saying in order to get rid of it. So it's a, it's a kind of profound acceptance. Wow. Given that conditions are the way that they are, this suffering is the way that it is. This aversion is the way that it is. Given everything, it couldn't be other than this. Wow. This is how it is. It's like this now. And the more we're there, the more the reactive ha uh, tendency is is suppressed and instead we're relating and responding from wisdom not from our reactive patterns as soon as we have a moment of not mindfulness we find ourselves reacting to the aversion in our typical way but if we can maintain that and so what might happen is boy I'm likely to not be mindful in a moment I better get out of this situation right so then we leave the room where we remove ourselves from whatever it is that's triggering the aversion. We shut the news off. You know, whatever we have to do. Maybe we inform the person, you know, I'm really, I'm feeling a lot of aversion now and, uh, and I, I don't want to harm myself and I don't want to harm you. So I'm going to shut up, you know, and maybe later I'll be able to talk to you about this. But I really shouldn't now. I've done that.
Yeah, and so I, what, what I would say as a way of sort of restating what you said, Todd, is you're basically talking about the homework assignment, which is how do you get clear what non-forgiveness feels like? Or how do you get clear what aversion feels like? And you're talking about like noticing it. Like the Buddha calls uh, anger murderous, murderously sweet. And that kind of the, the sort of heightened energy when we're upset or angry or self-righteous or resentful. And so we want to we want to notice that sweetness. The, the ego feeds on that energy. We want to see that. And in a way, we have to, that's our gateway to see the pain that's also there. Because the pain is covered up by that juiciness. So we have to first be mindful of the juiciness. And it's like uh, when we're not mindful of the juiciness, that's the superstructure. It looks like that's real and solid. But then when we're mindful of the juiciness, we see that underneath it is all this sort of twisted steel. You know, the heart is all constricted and it hurts. And we see both them. Then we're kind of dancing with both. We're aware of how much it hurts and we're still seduced by it. But that's a, that's a more subtle and useful place to be. And this is a first stage going past any sort of afflictive emotional state. Funny? you did a good job. And maybe the added thing, just because of the theme for the next few weeks, is when you're doing that, notice that what allows you to do the work you described is a kind of love or compassion for yourself, for your situation. Because actually that will strengthen, uh, it will strengthen the practice is if we can recognize that it's arising from something really beautiful. The willingness to do that is arising from something really beautiful and trustworthy. And that strengthens it. Other thoughts people like to share that from your own practice or questions? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm Chris. Um, it, it's a, I had a really interesting experience with aversion and anger um, about a little over a month ago, my brother suddenly died, and um, the funeral was on a day that a number of people from the extended family couldn't come. So uh, it was sort of complicated, but in any case, shortly afterwards, I got a call from one of the people who couldn't come, and she wanted me to take care of something that was a piece of furniture that needed to be and had to be moved, like right now. And um, it was a big thing to do. And uh, so 
I could feel myself get really angry because she wasn't acknowledging at all this, what I was saying to her, which was, I can't move that in the next three days because I've got all my brother's stuff in my house and I have to deal with it before I can move this piece of furniture into my house. I don't have any room for it in my heart or in my head or in my house. And um, she said to me, well, I realize that's an issue for you, um, which was like the key to it. Just, I just exploded and said, this is not an issue. This is real life. And, you know, I just cannot do this. And, you know, I was shouting at this person. I never do that. And, and it didn't feel very sweet, and it didn't feel very good. But afterwards, I was able to really be in touch with my grief in a way that I hadn't been at all up until that point. Because it was just like, you know, there were all these things to do and to organize and then So it was a real interesting thing for me because I, you know, I can get really, you know, I was talking to a number of people about this whole situation, about the furniture and blah, blah, and, you know, feeling pretty self-righteous and stuff. But when it came right to the moment of, of dealing with the person about it, 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 it really shifted um, away from aversion into, and then I could start to think about the things that I could, was having really difficulty forgiving in myself and letting the love for my brother really be there in me. Yeah. One of the important things in what you said, Chris, is that uh, just a reminder, this is not about controlling our difficult emotions. It's about trying to understand what's going on. Because having the intention to understand the difficult moments, like I was saying in response to your comment, Bonnie, it requires compassion. So when we're understanding, then if we have this intention to understand, then it means we're not blind, blindly acting out our emotions. But there's a sense of presence, of loving presence. And that's why you can get some very radical transformations, you know, going from being in a very self-centered, uh, destructive emotion to a very beautiful emotion. There's actually no distance. We think they're miles apart, but there's really, there's never any distance. Maybe time for one more thought or comment, question? Mm-hmm.
This is where, that's also a story that it needs to be let go of. So the dink in that story is being patient with it. You know, being patient with the process of healing or whatever it is that you have to go through. And because patience doesn't make sense when we're in a lot of pain. What makes sense when we're in a lot of pain is getting rid of it fast. So if we relate with patience, it's breaking the superstructure. It's putting the dink in the superstructure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's just take a few moments and sort of open to all of our old wounds, or not so old wounds. And we can include everybody else's old wounds, too. And the great truth is, of course, everybody has a lot of old wounds. There isn't anybody without them. We can aspire to live with a great, a great tenderness and open-heartedness, understanding how wounded we all are, how easy it is for human beings to be confused and to act out of that confusion, to be fearful and act out that fear, to be needy and act that out. So as best I can, I forgive myself and I forgive others. So may each of us in our own way set in motion this kind of forgiveness and patience and love, wisdom and compassion in the world. May we all be at ease, free from suffering and free from the roots of suffering. Thanks for coming, everyone. It's nice to be here together, to practice together. I have a couple of announcements. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.